Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, Executive Editor at Glossy. And today's guests are the Bybee co-founders, Dominika Minarovic and Elsie Rutterford. Welcome. Hi, Elsie. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for having us. And Dominika, it's so nice to see you. Yeah, it's a shame we couldn't be in person, but we'll do it over Zoom anyway. Nice to see you, Priya. I know. I mean, one day we'll be back in the office, kind of, or we'll be recording these um, in real life. <laughs> First, I would love to know how you two met. You know, I know Bybee is one of these brands that, you know, the beauty industry, everyone in the beauty industry, I feel like is talking about, especially around your sustainability goals. And you just recently moved into Target. So how did you guys first get to know each other? Yes. So, I mean, our relationship goes back um, many years, more than I'd like to divulge. No, I'm joking. Um, 2013, I think we met, maybe 2012. Um, So it's a long time now. Um, And we actually met while working together. So uh, we were working in the advertising industry here in London. Um, We are both from sales backgrounds. So we we are saleswomen through and through. And we joined the same company at the same time on quite similar roles and just head it off instantly. You know, when you you find those people in the office or um, at work that you just connect with. And we became the like office BFFs, basically, allies um, together. And, you know, we bonded over many things, but um, there was a real kind of like shared love of things like health, fitness, wellness. That scene was kind of hitting the UK at the time um, and a shared kind of love of beauty as well. And that's how we really kind of connected. Um, And that sort of like grew then into, um, you know, stuff that we were doing outside of work, um, kind of experimenting with um, the wellness kind of scene overall. Um, And that went from kind of food and sort of merged into beauty. So we ended up um, kind of diving into the naturals world, um, simply from like a um, kind of looking for good performance products, um, uh, kind of background, um, and ended up sort of making our own products, you know, in our kitchen sinks and documenting the journey, um, which was great. You know, it was a, a great um, kind of basis to start um, what then became a product brand, but it certainly wasn't a kind of product brand when we first um, when we first started. We sort of um, grew this content platform, um, which back then was called Clean Beauty Insiders. Um, we had a book published by Penguin, which was um, our kind of recipe book for your your skin, your hair, um, all centered around kind of natural ingredients. Um, and we were running these um, kind of events like workshops in in central London where we bring together um people who were interested in making their own beauty products basically um and we spent quite a lot of time just like testing out I guess like different ways of monetizing the content that we'd sort of begun to do as a hobby um it was never our end goal certainly not at the beginning to make a product brand like we were kind of concept testing but we weren't necessarily didn't necessarily like end up on you know we want to produce products we were kind of like maybe it could be events perhaps we could do um like a you know an editorial platform where we shared recipes and content and that sort of thing but I think what we kept winding back to was our kind of um love for beauty and love for um you know being kind of millennial mainstream beauty consumers um coupled with um wanting great products driven by sort of natural um underpinned by good ethics you know things like veganism and sustainability that which were kind of hitting the scene at the time um but all married together in a way that felt really fresh and modern and didn't feel like crunchy granola or um incredibly expensive and and in the end we sort of wound up at actually you know perhaps a product brand is just is just what we want to do but we spent some time kind of really um building i guess or testing audiences um before we sort of wound up at that product brand 
So I guess going back a little bit, you know, 2013, where do you think the market was in the UK around these topics like sustainability, clean, veganism, cruelty-free? Because I love the idea that you started with a content platform. So many of the brands that we're seeing today here in the US and all over are doing that. You know, you think about Into the Gloss, then Glossier. You know, obviously you guys were doing that over in the UK. So I'm just wondering, like, what was people's maybe immediate reaction or what was people's, like, familiarity with these topics? I think at that time it was fairly primitive, to be honest. You know, the concept of clean hadn't really been established as a term. Sustainability definitely wasn't a term. And I guess environmentalism as a whole was just, I guess, coming on people's radars, but definitely not from a consumer product perspective. Um, You know, when we started Bybee and I guess Clean Beauty Insiders more so, we had these threads of sustainability in some of these topics already kind of perpetuating and starting to brew. So a lot of the stuff that we were talking about on Clean Beauty Insiders was kind of dive into your fridge and use what's about to go off, one-time use, you know, no waste. And we didn't necessarily phrase that as a sustainability kind of mission or endeavor. It just made a lot of sense to us because, you know, um, I guess by nature, we always think about the environment and are climate conscious in our behavior as consumers. So we were kind of like, you've got this great green smoothie, why don't you just apply that to your face? Because actually we did see great results. And really the reason why we created Bybee to be natural and why we, you know, talked a lot about naturals um, from day one is because we saw amazing benefits for the skin. And we've always been around performance. Um, You know, our brand has never been around toxins or excluding ingredients or synthetic bashing. You know, even Clean Beauty Insiders was all about the positivity around using pure unprocessed natural ingredients. Um, And those threads still are very um, prominent in Bybee today. But, you know, back then those topics were, you know, not really discussed. And when we went to retailers with our prototypes of Bybee, you know, they were so excited because they'd seen, you know, Glossier in the US, um, you know, all of these brands, Drunk Elephant was just starting to make waves. The term clean was being used more and more, but there was absolutely nothing in the UK. So we were one of the first brands. I mean, sometimes we meet people and they say that you that you guys coined the term clean beauty. And we were like, mm, I mean, we would love to say that we did. <laughs> but maybe but we, you did in the UK. Maybe you were the you were that version of that. Like what we had was Drunk Elephant. You guys were what doing that in the UK and Europe. Right? Yeah, I mean, we were definitely one of the first homegrown brands and we're still one of the first homegrown brands to be taking sustainability really seriously. So that's really important to us. But we have never defined ourselves, I guess, as a clean brand because we find it has quite a lot of negative connotations. Um, again, for us, it's about positivity. We're natural, we're vegan because we re- believe that that delivers um, beneficial results for the skin. And I think, again, that message was really well, well received and continues to be well received by retailers that I guess are maybe having a bit of toxic and fatigue. You know, there's a lot of negativity in the beauty industry. And I think it's it's time to switch that conversation of clean back to what's in your products, not what's not in your products as well. That's interesting that you say that because it seems like these no-no lists, you know, which, you know, started four or five years ago have gone rampant. You know, it's just like so many standards these days have hundreds and hundreds of ingredients on them. But, you know, you're saying what's not in your your product. Again, it's like a negative way of coming at it. So I'm just wondering, you know, did the customer get it? Because, you know, they were being messaged, at least here in the US, they were being messaged, this has, this doesn't have this, this doesn't have that. And you're not speaking to them like that. So I'm just wondering how they got, you know, comfortable with, with these topics. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think 
you know, also coming at it from um, being based in the UK, obviously we were formulating to EU, or we were, and we still are, but <laughs> the EU situation is slightly different now. But um, we were formulating to EU regulations, which are very different. So I think the audience here, certainly um, that kind of like fear-mongering around um, like toxins and synthetics that kind of goes on or that conversation that goes on, I think is is diluted here in, in the UK and, and in Europe. Like, um, I think there's a wider understanding that perhaps our regulations are a little bit stricter. Um, but, you know, having said that, I, I think that that message still um, is, is widespread and people do still think about it. But I think the way that we we position ourselves and and the people that we talk to, um, perhaps people that are concerned about uh, yeah toxins and and synthetics in that way um, wouldn't wouldn't necessarily find us automatically because we are definitely pitched much more as a kind of mainstream mass you know synthetic brand but we just happen to be natural and that's very intentional because we wanted to go after a, a mass audience um and i would say that people find us for our performance so the language and way that we speak about our products is is about what this will do to your skin it's not as dominica said about what is not in this product because actually you know the the list of no-nos doesn't always kind of link up to then skin benefits and i think people that find our products understand um, the place for each in- ingredient in our formulations, which we're very clear about, um, you know, from top to bottom of our inkies, we will be clear about why those ingredients are there and how they translate to your skin benefit. And I think that's enough for the customer, certainly for the, the consumer that is looking for high performance, you know, um, great quality, sustainable skincare products. Like they want to understand first and foremost how they're going to work on their skin. And I think, you know, that does translate. Um, and so we, we didn't actually find it was that tough in terms of the messaging. We found that it, it was, um, it was quite clear and it was quite attractive. And it also opened us up to a wider audience, to those not necessarily thinking about the no-no lists, to those that hadn't arrived at the, I, you know, I'm scared about these kind of synthetics. It opened us up to a mass audience who were just looking for really good quality, high-performance skincare. It sounds like after you started Clean Beauty Insiders, you kind of went through a very iterative process. You know, you had the blog, you had the podcast, you had the book, and then events, and then you finally landed at products. It seems a little bit circular versus the way that people are launching brands today. Why do you think maybe it you wanted that proof of concept before actually going into products, before, say, you know, doing something else or just keeping it being an editorial content site? Well, I think that that's the smart thing to do, isn't it, these days? You know, everyone's launching brands left, right and centre and actually maybe putting a bit of thought behind it. <laughs> it's not a bad thing. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, as Elsie said, we were incredible. You know, we had found, I guess, concept market fit, if you will. Um, we knew that, you know, the, the language, the audience, um, even the aesthetic of the brand, us as founders, we knew that we resonated. And for us, it was just about finding the perfect product to really engage with our customer. Um, and yeah, we tried loads of things. You know, we even had ideas about doing kind of DIY skincare boxes. And, you know, there was that we sat at the table and, and, you know, it was like a blank sheet. But actually, there was such an obvious gap for a product brand. Um, you know, it felt like the sensible thing to do, although it's not necessarily the, the, the easiest or the least expensive route. Um, but we felt really passionate that we could deliver something that hadn't already been, um, you know, catered for for our consumer. So, um, yeah, it, it was a little bit of an iterative process, but we learned a lot. And I think that we make really good decisions. And we also didn't raise a ton of money at the start. So we built the brand from scratch. And I think, again, that's really important in the day where, you know, you can have a great 
concept or a great Instagram following and you can suddenly raise a few million dollars and then you're out of the gate. Um, I think when you kind of hustle your way to the top a little bit more, you learn and you have a little bit more, I guess, grit in terms of doing things, um, you know, with not necessarily just like hyper growth in mind, you want to get things right as well. That's such a great segue because obviously you guys raised last year before you launched here in the US and um, with Target, which is obviously a mammoth of a retailer here. So I'm just wondering, like, tell me a little bit about that experience because, you know, we often get these, and I'm probably more cynical about this, but, you know, we often get these announcements from PR people and they say, you know, this person raised, do you want to do a story? And I'm like, well, what's the raise for? What can they speak to? Or what's this about? And then, you know, kind of PR goes a little bit dark. But, you know, now that I have you here, you know, I can imagine that it was much more for the target acceleration. But, you know, you had been very scrappy before. So what was like, you know, 7 million, is it a ton of money, but it is a substantial amount compared to, you know, what you started with? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, we've raised about 8 million to date. So the, the the large chunk of our raise has has come from that Series A fundraiser that we closed at the end of last year. Um, I think we, so our distribution, we, we launched as a retail, like retail first business. Like we've never been a D2C business. We've always had like a really strong omni-channel presence. And um, going into retail from such a young age in terms of the brand's age um, has taught us a lot. And I think one thing that we knew coming into the US market and partnering with somebody like Target was we needed to be well capitalized. Like we'd spent some time working with retailers in Europe and here in the UK um, and really kind of understanding, um, you know, the the buckets of um, money that you really need um, to be able to invest to make retail work. Like it's not, we often say like, it's not about selling, it's about sell through. Like you, we don't have a hard job getting onto the shelves of retailers, like to be completely frank, because, you know, we've got enough kind of like buzzwords in our, in our product range to, to kind of catch the attention of buyers. The tough, job for any brand is is about making it work once you've kind of launched and we we had a couple of years behind us to really understand that so when we were looking at our US launch and we had decided to partner with Target for that um it became really clear like we're going to need we're going to need cash like we're going to need cash to be able to make this work we're going to need cash to be able to invest in in the buckets that we really know move the needle for retail sales and you know we were also looking at this as as a kind of like two-pronged race because not only were we launching with you know a, a retailer the size of target you know it was an 1800 door launch um we were also coming into the u.s pretty much fresh we had a small distribution um in the u.s that had kind of been ticking along without much focus from us so it was a market entry into a market the size of the u.s which is you know quite if you compare it to the uk it's ginormous so so you know we we knew that we needed to be well capitalized because um there's the kind of you know making it work at target and and pushing sales there but there was also like huge brand awareness piece for us because we were essentially launching a brand from scratch in the US um so yeah that that was essentially what the raise was for we went out at, you know the beginning of last year um, to a number of partners that we'd already been talking to. And um, and that was the pitch. It was, you know, to, to launch into the US and, and to make the, the, the partnership with Target really work. How would you say the market was different? I, I would say like, you know, obviously you guys are in boots and I would say that's kind of comparable to Target in the US, but maybe not. But when you started reaching out to investors, whether, you know, globally or US specific, and when you thought about this launch, like, what was different about it? Because I mean, the UK, obviously you have a ton of awareness and you have a ton of, you know, know-how and expertise and that's established. So it must be kind of difficult in a way to be like, hey, we're here, you may not know us, right? 
Yeah, it's definitely challenging. I think it's such a noisy market as well, the U- um, the US. I think we've had a little bit of luxury, as I've said, you know, almost being like a first to market, exciting homegrown brand in the UK and Europe. Um, whereas coming into the US, you know, there's new brands launching all the time. And even throughout our fundraise, you know, we were competing with um, some of the biggest names for the, you know, the same pots of money. So it was definitely challenging, but I think we articulated how we were different really well. And that's that's important. Um, I think the target, the US customer, I think there's a lot of synergies between, you know, how we speak to her and how we market to her in the UK. I would say the target customer is quite different. And that is probably something that was a little bit unexpected for us. We kind of came in with the original playbook and we were like, yeah, we kind of know how this works. But actually the target customer is a target, a a customer to their own. Um, And we've really switched gears to, I guess, more traditional media. Um, Whereas previously, you know, obviously we do digital media, we heavily invest in influencers and partnerships. Um, But for Target, we've done things like infomercials and paid TV sponsorships, um, you know, direct mail, these really traditional kind of media routes. And I think that the Target and the US customer as a whole is more receptive to those, I guess, more traditional media, whereas in the UK, they're almost obsolete. Um, So that was that was an interesting kind of switch gears for us. But I think it's important um, to always be open to new media and kind of, yeah, media streams and and being able to reach customers in ways that you potentially haven't reached them before. So I think the language is quite similar. And I guess a lot of the concepts are similar. I guess the way people engage with media we found is quite different. You mentioned a second ago that your your audience was very much like you. Your customer was, you know, millennial, was kind of very much in, exposed to clean, cruelty-free sustainability kind of around the same time you were. So I'm wondering, like, you know, were there differences in the actual customer themselves? Did you find the target customer maybe more educated, less educated, older, younger, mothers? You know, what what can you tell me there? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think what we really learn and are kind of still learning as we continue to grow with Target is that um, the audience is certainly still within that kind of millennial bucket. Although I think if we're looking at the audience as a whole, we're kind of, you know, highly indexed within millennial, older millennial, but even then kind of going up into sort of Gen X or Xennials, I heard them called the other day. Um, and that's quite interesting because, you know, a lot of people think they take a look at our brand and think that, uh, you know, because of our branding, we would be like young millennial, kind of like Gen Z um, a type brand. And because of what we stand for when it comes to sustainability. But actually, that that isn't always the case, particularly not with the target customer. I think like, you know, millennial pink isn't just for millennials, like, <laughs> you know, older women like light pink too. Um, but also, it's been interesting to kind of like really understand how much our values resonate with an older audience who often get discredited. You know, it's often the, you know, Gen Zs who are given the credit for driving the sustainability conversation. But we've really found that um, our kind of like older bucket of our audience still really resonates and, and is looking for a kind of sustainable brand. I think what we've really found with, you know, being in Target and and kind of speaking to the audience there is that actually, what is the probably the most attractive thing about our brand is value. So we're we're not the cheapest brand on the shelves. We never will be. Um, But that doesn't necessarily hinder us. I think what it does is... um, kind of like really position us as a, a kind of like premium luxury brand within the, the target set that drives very good value for money. Like we're not cheap, we're very good value. If you pick up our products, they are weighty. We use gold foiling, we use really rich, deep tones. They almost have like 
a kind of nostalgic glamour to them that, you know, you don't necessarily find in our competitive set on the shelves in Target. And the, the formulations are, you know, we use high quantities of really potent ingredients that actually change your skin and actually really have an effect. And I think um, what's really resonated with the Target audience is, is that value for money. Um, and so therefore, they're kind of looking for, you know, our formulations, they're really driven by, um, yeah, the, the kind of types of products that we have on the shelves there. Um, but also, I guess, secondary to that are driven um, for purchase by our kind of sustainability values, which has been quite interesting, because I don't think we necessarily thought that that audience would be that would be so high on their radar. But it really has been. And I think that's also to do with Target and the way that as a business, they're kind of framing the the brands that they bring on and, and really shaping um, their collection to be centered around sustainability, um, as well as kind of high performance skincare. Elsie, that's a great segue for this question, because I'm wondering, you know, who is in your competitive set at Target? Because, you know, like you said, there is such a vast array of price point there. And I believe the average price of your products are about is about $18. So you're right, like you're not, you know, CeraVe or, you know, um, Neutrogena. But again, like, it's not the most expensive thing there either. So who do you see in the skincare space in the US, I guess, as your competitor? I think the great thing about what's happening in Target is that, um, you know, they're really taking on brands and supporting them in a meaningful way, but they're really thoughtful about the collections. So while we definitely have competitors, there's, you know, no doubt that we sit amongst a very competitive set, you know, where, you know, above Verst, next to Naturium, next to Bliss, we've got Hero, Cosmetics, Sweet Chef, you know, we are surrounded by the best of the best. But I actually think that each brand has a really strong point of difference. And we, and Target has given each of us the space to really articulate that point of difference. So I would actually say that each brand within our competitive set, which is the specialty skincare aisle at Target, um, each has quite a unique kind of approach and, and aesthetic and um, tone of voice that makes each brand quite different. Um, I would say Coco Kind as well definitely sits in our competitive set. You know, they do some amazing things in sustainability as well. Um, their price point is very similar. I guess, you know, we will always say that, um, you know, we've all got something different. So I think, you know, but I think that the the collection at Target has been really thoughtfully um, kind of put together and the assortment is is non-competing, which again, you don't necessarily want loads of brands that offer the same thing um, because then you kind of cannibalize sales between one another and it's difficult for the consumer to come in and feel like they're getting variety. So, um, you know, our point of difference is definitely um, being natural. You know, our packaging, as Elsie said, you know, has quite a different aesthetic to Verst and Naturium. Um, and we talk a lot, we're almost a hybrid skincare wellness brand, um, which again is a big trend in Target. They've backed a lot of big wellness kind of supplement brands. The language that we use is all about antioxidants, minerals, vitamins. We use a lot of food derived extracts. Um, we talk a lot about probiotics. We talk a lot about adaptogens. Um, and that is very different language from Aversa Naturium, who, fin- who follow a very kind of clinically clean um, language philosophy as well. So I think that there's room for us to all win. But I mean, yeah, we are definitely in a very competitive set. You know, some of those brands are pushing big numbers at Target for sure. What about bigger brands, you know, like heritage or legacy brands that, you know, have been on the market forever, like a Neutrogena or a CeraVe or a Cetaphil? Like, do you feel like that is your competitor at all or that you're playing in the same space? 
think it's an interesting question. I, I wouldn't say they're necessarily a competitor, but we are obviously playing in the same space. But I think that we offer something so different to a customer versus a Neutrogena, for example, that it's hard to say, you know, when we look at quite literally on TikTok, we see, you know, shopping baskets of what people are buying at Target. And, you know, there's, it, it's a real mixed bag. You know, you've got your CeraVe's with your Bybee's, um, with your Bliss, with your, you know, um, Dr. Dr. Bronner's or Burt's Bees, you know, it's, it's quite literally like everything at plus the kitchen sink. So I think, yeah, you know, it's just all about making our point of difference, um, really clear to the customer because I think the customer is really receptive, um, and really wants to try the brand. Um, and something I'll just, you know, Elsie was talking about how the target customer is really receiving our sustainability values. Um, and the way that I'm personally seeing that really resonate is through our reviews. So if you look on target.com, so many of them mention our sustainability endeavors, which I think is great that not only that message is landing with the customer and that, you know, we've we've positioned ourselves correctly, our messaging on pack is correct, you know, our POS is correct, but actually that that is something that they value. Um, so a lot of the same comments that this is great value for money, you know, this is so affordable for what you get. And I love that the packaging is X, Y, and Z, or this is upcycled or, you know, some of the other values that we have. So that is really exciting to see, I think. Speaking of that, you know, obviously the pandemic was, you know, difficult in so many ways. And obviously, like, essential retailers like Target really won in the U.S. But I think with all the packages that we were all receiving at home, whether it be from Target or Amazon or wherever, sustainability, surprisingly, I think, really shot up last year. And at the same time, there was a lot of greenwashing happening. Like, what is upcycled? What is carbon neutral? What is, you know, all of these things? I I think we talked about this a little bit over email, but, you know, Allure banning the word recyclable. Like, what does that actually mean? So do you feel like that you've had to explain that more or that you've had to um, maybe double down on it in a different way because so many more people are talking about it? Yeah, definitely. You know, we started out the reason that we and even the even the term sustainable is a little bit problematic in itself because there there's no it's not regulated. So what does it even mean, really? There's not and you'll still hear me say sustainable having said just said that, but that's because there's not really an alternative to it. Like it's it, that in itself is yeah, can can be quite challenging, but I think we started out as a sustainable, and I'm using like bunny quotes there, um, brand, because we were, you know, interested in it from a personal perspective, but also like we were really like propelled by um, the bad practices that we saw coming into the industry being complete novices, if, if I'm totally honest. Like, as I said, we came from advertising, so we weren't, we're not, we haven't been in beauty all of our career. And um, when we decided to start a product brand, when we then started to dig into exactly what that entails. It was an incredibly archaic industry um, that was just, yeah, completely steeped in in bad practices that were really damaging to the environment. And at that point, beauty wasn't talking about it. Fashion was, food and drink were, but beauty was not. It's it's only been in the the last couple of years that beauty's kind of jumped on the bandwagon. And as you quite rightly say, the way that beauty or the lens that beauty has put on sustainability has been around recyclability of of, beauty. packaging which is again very problematic because it's <laughs> there's not one universal standard so uh, you know but i think that aside what we found was when we first started we tried to do everything we tried to you know do everything that we found every choice that we made was driven by being better for the environment and that became quite difficult to make choices because we didn't have a, a universal kind of like um standard that that based that judged good or bad and it also became very difficult for us to communicate 
communicate what we were doing to the consumer because we were doing so much, but it felt like the actual impact we were having was so little. So we actually did a huge piece of work to understand, you know, through from our entire supply chain, what, what was driving the biggest environmental impact, negative environmental impact. And we just kept coming back to carbon time and time again, you know, carbon is the biggest um, contributor to climate change. Um, or, But it's very difficult to talk about within beauty because you, you can't see it, you can't feel it, you can't touch it in the same way that you can beauty packaging, right? And it's not very sexy to start talking about like fossil fuels when you're talking about like high performance skincare. So I think like what we found was um, centering in on one sustainable focus, like one one mission for the brand to really help us in our overall mission of becoming more environmentally responsible. And once we decided on that, it then became much easier to communicate to the customer. It then became much easier to kind of like really send to the business, really drive our team, really get our team bought into our sustainability, sustainability mission because we had a very clear goal. And then kind of to my point just now about it being hard to make decisions because we didn't have a kind of point of judgment now we know if we're if we're choosing a material for example and we're looking at all of its sustainability credentials and and where it's from and how it's made we will always base the final decision on its carbon footprint and we will choose that material because of its carbon footprint and then if it's got additional kind of things underneath that that you know it's um it's a recyclable material, you know, that it's afterlife. We'll kind of take all of that into consideration. But the, the carbon footprint is is the point for us. And I think that has really helped us carve a niche among the sustainable brands, you know, really helped us kind of like put the, the flag in the ground and, and um, kind of centre our mission and has helped us cut through the greenwashing. And we've really seen that the customer is incredibly receptive to that. It's very easy for us to in- explain our sustainability mission now because we have it so crystal clear. So last year, you all became net zero by the end of 2020 and your goal is to become carbon negative by 2025. So I guess, how would you explain that to the lay customer? Like, what does that mean to you? I think um, for us, net carbon zero was the first stop on the journey to being, I guess, pro-planet, climate conscious. You know, these are the terms that we use above using, uh, referring to ourselves as sustainable. Um, And that was the first stop. But that was just, I guess, to get a gauge of what our actual carbon output was. Um, I think it's really easy for a brand to do that auditing process. It costs $10,000. And then it's like, oh, great, we know where our output is. Let's offset that. And then let's just carry on. But that doesn't really solve the problem that we're in, which is global we need to reduce our carbon emissions. Um, you know, offsetting programs are amazing, but they take a lot of time. Um, and it is a little bit of paying your way out of a problem. Um, so quite early on, we realized that becoming net carbon zero um, through offsetting was not going to solve for the problem that we were, which is we need to reduce our carbon footprint. Um, and actually, at this point, if you look at it, you know, the world is not a better place with Bybee on its shelves. We have a positive outcome in terms of we are producing a lot of carbon as we ship our products around the world and we produce them. So for us to really be sustainable, we actually have to be doing something that has a positive impact on the planet, which in our eyes is actually absorbing more carbon than we're releasing. So we're building a proprietary supply chain that actually absorbs more carbon than it releases. We're doing this through a system that we have called the SUSTI score, which is a auditing system. And as as Elsie said, we audit every material from packaging, each 
each raw material, each supplier that we work with, each manufacturing partner, and we essentially grade them um, and we give them a score and then we assess their carbon output. And essentially what we're trying to do is create a supply chain through sequestering, where essentially we have one process that has a small amount of carbon output and then another process that absorbs that carbon. So it's kind of like balancing the scales um, to the point where actually not we're not neutral, we're actually absorbing more carbon than we release. Um, and that is a tall order, I'll tell you. Um, but we are making really great progress to this goal. Um, we're doing some really interesting things, um, including using sugarcane, bioplastic, which is a carbon negative material, upcycled ingredients. All of our manufacturers now run on green energy. We send everything by sea. Um, we have local fulfillment in the US as well, which has helped a lot with goods distribution. Um, so there is just so much we're doing. We're doing a lot of like transport tweaking. So really optimizing routes around transport to minimize unnecessary miles um, from kind of raw materials and distribution. So there's a lot going on, um, but that is our overall mission to be carbon negative by 2025. So I have so many questions and I have to be the first one to admit that like I don't 100% get all of this, all of these different pieces, like, and I'm not probably as as well aware as you all are, but I'm wondering, you know, when you think about all of these different elements, like you're talking about upcycling, you're talking about the packaging specifically, like, you know, the sugarcane packaging and like, you know, I had this long conversation with somebody the other day about how glass wasn't actually more sustainable because it's so much heavier when you transport it. And then I know you guys use recycled glass in some cases, correct? Um, but, and then you're talking about the transport piece. So when you think about all of these different buckets, I know it's hard to say, but which area do you think is the most important? You know, I know, I guess that's pick, like picking your children, but you know, between transport and packaging and ingredients themselves, like where do you think the beauty industry is really, you know, at, at, a, at a loss and where you think you're contributing? Because I think we often get caught up in the packaging conversation, but um, I don't know if that's actually the most impactful uh, as brands. Yeah. Well, you have to understand the full picture, first of all, to as a brand to be able to kind of understand then where um, or what, what are your kind of like biggest holes of carbon. But um, so we've done a really extensive piece of auditing work that's that's looked into exactly that. So it's it's looked into a kind of life cycle analysis of, of our products from seed to shelf, we like to say. Um, and I wouldn't say that any any number of those buckets is more important than another. Like you have to look at the entire supply chain and understand the whole picture um, to then start to think about how and where you can pull things down. Um, so, you know, you might, for example, look at one of your ingredients and the ingredient itself, the way that it's harvested is, you know, incredibly carbon efficient and um, it's an upcycle ingredient, but you're manufacturing in the UK and it's, you know, grown and um, produced in like Southeast Asia. And then in that instance, it's the distribution of getting that ingredient to where your manufacturing process or takes place that's going to be the biggest you know, um, culprit for climate, uh, for carbon in, in that instance. So you have to really have a full picture to kind of really understand. And I don't think that you can pick off one or another bit of the supply chain. Like you have to look at the supply chain as a, as a whole. And you're so right. The beauty industry doesn't do that. Or there certainly aren't many beauty brands talking about it. There are beauty brands doing it, you know, us being one of them, um, and making good, like, good progress. But um, I don't think that there's enough transparency when it comes to looking at the entire supply chain. And as I said earlier, the lens has just been focused on on packaging, which um, we do have to think about the afterlife of our packaging. Absolutely. Like, and that is tied up in carbon as well, because the more that goes to landfill, like that, that's still, you know, still releasing kind of methane, which is also 
also um, a greenhouse gas. So we do have to think about that, but it isn't the only piece of the conversation. You're right. And I think the only way for us to kind of like really understand how to have a, pro- a proper, like positive impact is to understand your entire supply chain. And that takes work. And a lot of brands don't have the funds, don't have the interest, don't think that it will connect with their audience and, you know, enough to, to want to do that or to be able to do that. Um, but we see it as, you know, we've got a sustainability line on our PL. Like it's 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 part of our brand, it's our bread and butter, it's it's the beating heart of of our values, and it's therefore very important because we know it is also important to our customer. Um so I think like, yeah, you, you have to be kind of like fully invested in your in your su- entire supply chain. There isn't necessarily one bit that's gonna be um more important than the other. You know, I was just going to ask, because obviously this does sound very expensive, especially, you know, trying to create your own supply chain and think about all of these different pieces. And I know we just talked about funding. So was part of the funding, obviously, to spur this kind of innovation and spur this leader status within sustainability? Yeah, definitely. I think the thing that we benefit from a lot in the UK is research and development tax credits, and we invest heavily into sustainability. And that's at the support of our government, which is amazing that they're able to um, really support these kind of endeavours. And the UK government has a lot of initiatives specifically around carbon reduction on supply chains, which is great. So we've been able to benefit from those as well. Um, but as Elsie said, this is quite literally a line on our P&L. Um, and it's something that, you know, we do invest in heavily, but we believe that it will provide that upside and that outcome for us. Um, so yeah, it's the thing is, it's not as expensive as you would think in terms of having to pay someone else to do it. As I said, you know, we quite literally developed a self-auditing system. We did that with, you know, myself, Elsie, and, you know, one of our members of staff. It takes a lot of legwork and a lot of time to work through something like that. But all of our MPD, all of our paper formulations run through that. We do all of our product development in-house. So it enables us to really dig deep into sustainability from concept stage before we've even put pen to paper and that's really important. But it drives a lot of our decisions rather than having us having to retrospectively pay someone to figure stuff out. We're doing it at point of decision making. If we've got a new product and we're looking at a formulation, we can already know what its carbon output is going to be before we put monetary dollars behind that. Um, and that's really important because, again, it's just being smart about the way that we spend our money as well. Um, it's really easy to just, you know, funnel loads of money through a third party to do a lot of this legwork for you, but you're not going to get that true understanding of where your impact is, um, particularly not if you're doing it retrospectively. So many of the conversations around sustainability, at least that I hear about, is it, it often comes down to scale. And, you know, I think one of the things that's been really impressive about Target is that they are providing the opportunity for the customer to choose, and it's not just necessarily at a luxury price point. So, you know, being a smaller brand, being an indie brand emerging, you know, oftentimes people say like, oh, well, it's the conglomerates that really need to, you know, figure out what Unilever is doing or what Cody's doing, and then that'll have a trickle-down effect on the customer. Do you think that's true, or do you think that you guys are actually then maybe inspired the conglomerates or the larger corporations to make change? Yeah, we're absolutely inspiring them to make change. Um, I think like, you know, we will always be, have the ability to be agile, be faster to market, to be able to make decisions faster, to be able to listen to our customer in a way that the larger companies can't. So I think that as long as there's enough of us, enough of the kind of smaller brands kind of like, you know, 
bubbling away and hustling and um, sparking that consumer interest, um, it will always kind of catch the attention and, and the eyes of the bigger kind of like L'Oreal's and, and Unilever's who will catch on. Uh, it will take them, you know, y- years longer, um, but they will get there. I think though, that is a great thing. Like we, when we see like one of the big guys drop a sustainable brand, um, you know, sustainable again in, in bunny quotes, like um, however, whatever angle they're taking at that, even if it's just looking at their packaging, we we like do a dance in the Bybee office because that is such great news. Like one, it means that us little guys do have a big voice and we are catching the attention. But two, the goal, the reason that we're doing this is for our planet. And I'm sorry to get like a bit hippie on you here, but it's, you know, we want to make like a difference to our climate. That is the whole point of doing this. So if we have the big guys actually starting to, um, you know, albeit slowly step in the right direction and change some of their incredibly large and complex supply chains, that is that is hugely positive to us. So we say like, take note. We say carbon copy us. That's, <laughs> that's our line. It's like, you know, if it, that, that is great news to us. And actually so much so that the SUSTI score, which is the um, auditing system that Dominique mentioned, like we open source that. Like if a brand wants to use it for their own um, sourcing and, and supply chain auditing, they absolutely can. Um, because we believe like this is a collective, like we have to do this, you know, together. We're not going to make um, any kind of progress if it's just just a small brand like us doing things. So we kind of really um, are inspired and, and encourage people to to come and kind of join us in that. Um, because yeah, it will ultimate, ultimately have positive impact, which is great. So we didn't get to talk. I feel like I'm going to have to have you guys on the show again in like six months or towards the end of the year. But, you know, we didn't get to talk a lot about like how you're growing and how, you know, the size of the business today and all of that. Because I know, you know, this is a question that I ask many founders on this show. It's just like, what is the end goal for Bybee? Like, is it is it acquisition? Is it to get bigger? You know, would you ever partner with one of these larger brands? I know Unilever Ventures is one of your investors, but, you know, in a different capacity, because it really does seem that you have the know-how to to really influence a lot of other players. So would love to hear a little bit about growth, what you guys can share. And obviously, you know, what your future plans look like for whether it be the next year, whether next two years, because, you know, I, I'm hearing a lot of M&A is happening faster and faster. Yeah. I think in terms of our end goal, you know, we're really open to what that looks like. I think if we could partner with someone at a larger scale and really have that positive impact, that would be really exciting for us to be able to go in and to share what's happening behind the scenes at Bybee and really open the doors and allow other businesses to learn from our supply chain um, and our kind of carbon negative mission, I think would be really exciting to us. Um, But I think we're so early on in our journey and we've got so much to do as an independent brand. Um, At the moment, you know, we're hyper-focused on Target. The growth at Target so far has been phenomenal. We're so excited about where that account's going. We want that to be a 10 to $20 million account for us. You know, the scale is there and the customer is there. So that is definitely our short, short-term short goal. Um, you know, the business has always seen good growth. You know, we've been growing 200% year on year and, and we're hoping that will continue on as we grow um, and get larger in, in size. But I think, you know, the, the business has taken a dramatic shift upwards since we launched into the US because obviously the scale is phenomenal. Um, you you know, we are international, but there's no mark, market quite like the US. Um, so we're really excited to see what that's doing for the business. Um, but we're about thoughtful growth. You know, it's not about artificial, you know, we want to we want to have 
longevity as a brand because I think we have so many so much depth to us um, that you don't see with a lot of brands um, that kind of come to market really quickly and then exit really quickly I think we want the brand to be around in 10-20 years and we don't want to just be you know a logo on someone's website so I think any sort of strategic partnership going forward would be um, you know really thought out from our side but you know you mentioned you leave of ventures you know they've been a great investor of ours since seed um, we love the team there and I think the insight that you know that we get from Unilever and and share back because you know we do try and have conversations with um you know Unilever where where possible it's it's so exciting to see what's happening there as well so we absolutely love all of our investors and and excited for them to be on the journey with us I think Dominica has nailed it really you know for us it's 2021 is about target and carbon that's <laughs> that is you know that that is we're, we're laser focused we're we're a small team um we're predominantly HQ'd in London so we you know we have to be um incredibly focused with our efforts um to make sure that we're kind of like making the most out of um the team's kind of output so um everybody on team by is yeah like hyper focused on um making the US a success and also um, kind of hurtling towards this carbon negative goal that we've got for 2025. And this year is going to play a huge goal in making some of the kind of biggest steps um, towards achieving that. So we're excited. We're just keep, we're going to keep trucking on the two of us. We're hustlers through and through. As I said earlier, we're salespeople. So we know (laughs) we'll just keep going. (laughs) Thanks for tuning into the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. See you next week.